0: Uh, thankfully, we don't do them anymore, but you know what duels were? Like back in the day, if two guys fought a duel, you know what that It was, it was an arranged fight using matching weapons. That's a duel. And you could use swords, you could use uh, uh, usually pistols. Um, Alexandre Dumas, the, uh, he's the French guy that wrote The Three Musketeers, which should at least sound familiar, He apparently, he fought a number of duels. His history tells us. He himself told us. uh, Swords were his thing. None of those apparently were fatal, but he he won them all. But at one point, um, because he had besmirched the honor of someone, he was challenged to a duel with pistols, and he accepted, man of honor that he was. And here's where it gets really goofy. Um, it wouldn't have been a fair fight because Dumas, he grew up in a military family. His dad was one of the greatest generals of the French Revolution. And by all accounts, he was an expert marksman, even with the the very inaccurate handguns of that day. Uh, So the system of honor required that the duel go off, you know, happen. But the same system of honor required that they couldn't have it because it wouldn't have been fair. So here's what they did. They decided to draw lots, like draw straws, and whoever lost had to somewhere shoot himself. And he lost. And so he went into this room, and all the men that were there, they hear this shot, and they go charging in there, and he's completely fine. And he says, A most regrettable thing has happened, gentlemen. I missed. that's not the way a duel normally happened. We, we Maxwells actually have duels in our lineage. Uh, the Maxwell clan was a clan of Scotland. They had a castle and everything. I apparently was not from that branch of the tree. But uh, there was a guy named Sir Arthur Maxwell who, uh, who fought a number of duels, always with pistols. But his thing, instead of taking ten paces, turning and firing, he would take like two or three paces, turn around, and blast the guy in the back. Undefeated in duels was Uncle Art. Uh, he was actually hanged uh, for uh, for that. So he always won, though he didn't do it uh, fairly. So that's you know unusual duels. And where we are at in the uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. The reason I mention duels is because Jesus, in the last week of his life, he, he rode into Jerusalem Sunday on Sunday in a way that advertised his claim to be the Messiah, he, uh, which people liked. He was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Jews liked that idea, but unfortunately for them when they thought when he got to the top of the hill he didn't start attacking rome what did he attack he attacked the temple he went into the temple and he ran out everybody who was selling animals for sacrifices and turned over the tables of the money changers he cleared the temple of this extortion scheme that the religious leaders had set up to squeeze money out of people and then he left for the night um he uh stop to curse a fig tree. That's what we looked at yesterday. It's been a few weeks for us, but where we pick up this morning is just the very next morning. After he's cleared the temple, Jesus sort of returns to the scene of the crime and he is going to engage the leaders of Israel in a number of like duels, only they're not matching weapons because here's a good rule of thumb for you. Never get into a debate with God you're going to lose. And that's what we're going to be studying for, for quite a while now. It's going to be a, quite a number of sermons, but there's just these duels where religious leaders step to Jesus with questions, with tricks, with debate, and he just kind of smacks them around verbally a little bit. And the first duel is today. We, he meets the, the chief priests and the elders of the people. Um, the religious elite, the rulers. All right, so we're going to read Matthew 21, 23 through 32, uh, where we're going to see the first little bit of a a duel, and then Jesus is going to tell a parable at the end. Okay, Matthew 21, 23. When he entered the temple, that's Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25. The baptism of John the Baptist was from what source? Was it from heaven or was it from men? Was it from God or did John make it up? And the religious leaders began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, then why did you not believe John? Whoops. Back me up one there quick, Jason. Thank you, sorry. Verse 26. But if we say John's ministry was made up from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to him to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? And here's his parable. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, the son regretted it, and he went and he worked in the vineyard. Verse 30, the man came to the second son and said the same thing. Son, go work in the vineyard. And that son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Jesus asked. And they said, The first, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. Because John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe John. There's our passage today. And we start in verse 23, where these religious leaders ask what I'm going to call a disingenuous question. Disingenuous because they, they really aren't after the information they pretend to be, to be after. They ask this question, by what authority are you doing these things? And, and this didn't make the slide, And they also ask, and who gave you this authority? They really aren't, they know how Jesus would answer that question. They know whose authority Jesus claims to act under. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' two religious leaders called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. In the Jewish way of thinking, thinking who was the Lord of the Sabbath? Who instituted the Sabbath? That's Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. That's God. Just the day before they asked this question, Jesus was in the temple wrecking the place, clearly indicating that he was the boss of the temple. He even called it my house. And he said, and this was two weeks ago in the sermon, he said that day, do you know why those kids over there are shouting what they're shouting to me? Because as God, a thousand years ago, I promised I would cause little children to sing my praises. And that's what's happening. They know how Jesus would answer this question. By the way, Jesus will answer this question very clearly. He's not going to do it today because that's really not what these guys are after. But in the last paragraph of this book, the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So they ask, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you the authority? Whose authority is it? It's his. Who gave him that authority? God the Father. So he will answer the question, just not to these guys in this story. They know how he would answer it anyway. Here's what's going on here. Here's what they're getting at. Here's why this is disingenuous. These guys, what did Jesus just do the day before? He just made a wreck of their temple, right? Do you think they're happy about that or mad about that? That's what they're mad about. They know we got to get rid of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. This is a very interesting question, I think. Why don't they just sort of arrest Jesus and say, everybody saw what he did here yesterday. They're back in the temple he wrecked. Everyone saw what he did yesterday. You can't do that. And so we're arresting Jesus for what he did in the temple. Why wouldn't they do that? Why do they ask him who said you could do what you did in the temple? Isn't that interesting? If I rob a bank this week, and they, the authorities catch me, are they going to care who told me I could rob the bank? Or are they just going to throw me in the slammer for robbing the bank? They don't care who told me I could. My mom said I could. God told me I could. They don't care. Here's why they don't care. Here's why they, why don't they appeal to what Jesus did instead of trying to get Jesus to say out loud, he acts under God's authority. Here's why. They have guilty consciences. They want no part of a debate about what Jesus did. Because why did Jesus, this is, a, this is from two weeks ago, why did Jesus chase out the animal vendors and the money changers? Because the religious leaders were extorting people of all of their money, right? They don't want to ask Jesus, why did you do what you did? Because he knows the people might, the people might agree with Jesus, So they don't want to do that. But they've got to find some way to get rid of Jesus. They want him to do something. They can accuse him of blasphemy. So they want him to stand in the temple and say, God's my father. I'm divine. But Jesus isn't going to play along. They're disingenuous. They're also hypocritical. Jesus is going to, by answering their question with a question... Jesus is going to expose their hypocrisy. They claim to be concerned about something they are not at all concerned about, and Jesus is going to help everyone see that. And I'm going to help you see it as soon as this mouse works. There we go. All right, so they have asked about divine authority. Isn't that what they asked about? Who said you could do what you did in the temple. They claim to care about divine authority, but they really don't. And that's what Jesus is going to help everyone see. And it's awesome the way he does it. All right, verse 24. So here's their question By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus says, Okay, verse 24. If you guys are really concerned about finding out, figuring out God's authority, I am more than happy to talk to you about God's authority. But I don't think that's what you're concerned about. So you answer a question that I'll give you that's really about God's authority. And if you care enough about God's authority to answer my question, then I will engage you on your question. That seems fair, right? And so here's Jesus' question. Where did John the Baptist get his authority? Where did John the Baptist's baptism from come from? Did, did God put John up to what John was doing, or did John just make the whole thing up? And as soon as Jesus asked that question, these guys are like, uh oh. We can't answer this question. We can't answer this question in a way that actually helps what we really care about. Because you know what these guys really care about? Their own position, their own authority their own money, you know, stuff most of us care about a lot of the time, if we're honest. And they can't answer the question, and they, they, they huddle up, and somebody says, man, I mean, we can't say that John the Baptist was from God, because if we say John the Baptist was on God's mission, we know what Jesus will say. Jesus will say, then why didn't you listen to John. Because we all know John said Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We all know John pointed people away from this temple and toward Jesus. So we can't say that John was from God. Somebody else says, yeah, but we really can't say that he wasn't either. Because if we want to keep our jobs, we want to keep our position, and we want all these people to keep buying uh, animals at 10 times the market value from us, We really have to keep people happy. And if we say John made up his ministry, they disagree with that. People will be mad. Maybe they won't show up here anymore or maybe they'll make a big stink and we'll lose our jobs. So they turn around and they go to Jesus and it's a huge cop-out. It's verse, I think, 27. They go to Jesus and they say, I don't know. They just kind of shrug. And it's not true. What they don't know is how to answer the question in a way that helps at what they really are after, which is keeping their own position and their own money and their own control and their own high place in society. That's what they care about, and they can't answer it. Man, oh man, is there a great lesson for us Christians. Right there. You know, as soon as we decide that God is going to be the authority in our lives, as soon as I decide the ultimate authority in my life is going to be the Lord. What he says, his version of right and wrong, his version of integrity and honesty and courage, That's going to be my divine authority. And luckily for us, he wrote it down. Once we decide this is going to be our authority, the good news is we have a very clear target at which to aim our lives. It does not change. It is overwhelmingly clear. I know there are some difficult things in here, but... The overwhelming majority of everything in here is very, very clear. And as soon as I say, this is going to be my authority because it is the word of God and he's my ultimate authority, I, have a, I just have a target that never moves, it never shifts, it never changes. That's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is, that's not always popular. The bad news is, Sometimes there's ways to make more money if I don't do what this says. The bad news is there are many more ways to be popular. There are many more ways to please other people by aiming my life at something different. See, these religious leaders, what Jesus is exposing, their ultimate authority was the opinion of the people. That's why they can't answer John's question. They don't care about God's authority. They only care about their own. And if I care about my own and my own position and my own wealth, I have to care what all those other people think. If they really cared about God's authority, they should have went in a room and said, you know what? We need to figure out if John was from God. And if John was from God and he pointed at Jesus, then we better make our peace with that. But if Jesus is the Messiah then they got to go out and he's got to come in. And they decide we can't do that. You know what, this, this, this happens in Christianity, it happens in our own lives all the time. It reminds me of Joel Osteen. I know I pick on Joel Osteen a lot, and it's only because he absolutely deserves it. Um, he goes on, he went on Larry King. It's on YouTube. Don't look it up now, please, but look it up later if you want. He goes on Larry King. Remember Larry? Larry King live, Joel Osteen, best-selling Christian author. Larry King says, All right, Joel, I'm Jewish. I do not accept Jesus as my Messiah or my Savior. I don't believe it. According to Christianity, doesn't that mean I am not saved, that I'm going to hell? Joel Osteen can't answer the question. Why? Because because this isn't clear? No. Because he wants to sell lots of books. Lauren Daigle. Many of you know who that is. Love her music. Uh, It's it's become hugely popular even outside uh, of Christian circles. A popular uh, magazine asks her if homosexuality is wrong. She cannot answer the question. Why? Because this isn't clear? No, because the answer is not popular. It happens over and over and over again. Anytime I aim my life at something besides this, the target always changes. If I aim my life at popularity or money or position or power or prestige, the target of how to get there will be in a different direction in different situations over and over and over again. And I have to do the the mental gymnastics of justifying my actions and why it really isn't bad. Well, you should have seen what the other guy did. And well, that doesn't mean that this time... This is hard, but it's stable. Anyway, back to the story. The question is, who's my authority? And Jesus has exposed these hypocrites. They really, they've asked about God's authority, but they really don't care about God's authority. They care about their own. And immediately then after telling these guys, so I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things because I've just exposed you as hypocrites. And then he's going to tell them a little story. A parable, as Jesus was fond of telling. And he's going to tell them a parable, he's going to ask them a question about the parable, and then he's going to very clearly tell them they're going to hell. (laughs) That's what happens. Um, All right, here's the parable itself. Jesus says, all right, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son number one, I want you to go to work in the vineyard today. And the boy answered, I will not. Later, he had a change of heart and went. Then the father went to that guy's brother, his other son. And he says, hey, I want you to go work in the vineyard. And this boy answered, oh, yes, daddy, I sure will. But he did not go. Stop right there. I want you to know there's no good son in this parable. This does not uh, grasp us in our culture the way it would have these guys that Jesus told me. You know why? Because our kids tell us no all the time. (laughs) But uh, what that first son does to his father would have been extremely humiliating to his dad. For dad to come in and say, today what you're going to do is go to the vineyard and work there. And for him to look at his dad and say, no. I don't care what you say. Would have been humiliating, borderline hatred. Now, later, he has a change of mind. He repents of that, and he actually goes to the vineyard and does what his dad does. But it, but he humiliated and hated his dad first. Second son is the opposite second son does not want his dad to be embarrassed or uncomfortable. So he says, yes, daddy, I will do exactly what you say. But but then he does not do what what his dad wants to do. So there's no good son. And the question is not which one's the good son. The question is, Jesus asks uh, the Jewish leaders, which of those two sons did his father's will? And they said, the first one. Do they get the question right? Yes. This is a very easy question. Which one did his father's will? Which is the only one who did what the father wanted done? The first son. Very easy. They get it right. And Jesus says, congratulations, way to go. Actually, he doesn't say that at all. He says, you guys are going to hell. <laughs> Here's how he says it. Jesus said to them, they're right. And Jesus tells them, here's what he tells them, you guys are the second son. You're the second son. You know you're supposed to be the first son, but you're the second son. He says, I tell you the truth, tax collectors and prostitutes, the worst sinners we could think of, tax collectors and prostitutes are going to go ahead of you into the kingdom of God. You know why? Because John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe John. You, were, you could have been the first son. John came and told you what you needed to do repent, go toward Jesus. And you hate him, and you said, No way. But then you didn't have the change of heart. You could have been the first son. And really, you're like the, the complete opposite. You hated God. <laughs> uh, when John came and you didn't do what he said. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe. Right? And although you saw them believe, you have seen tax collectors and prostitutes change their lives and start following God. Where, how far would they have had to look when Jesus was saying this to find either a tax collector or a prostitute who was now living a different life and following Jesus? How far would they have to look? Who wrote this book? Matthew, the tax collector, standing right there listening. It's like Jesus pointed at him and said, this guy was a tax collector. And he is a changed man, and you should see that. And it should change your opinion about me. And that's why tax collectors and prostitutes are going to be in heaven, and you guys aren't. You know, you know what the best we can hope for, you and me? The best we can be in this life is the first son in that parable. Our only hope is to be the first son. I made a big deal. I made sure I said before, when we read the parable, there's no good son in the parable. There's no one who loved God and said he would be obedient and actually did what he or she said. Well, there is one who is He. There's one good son, his name was Jesus. He's the only one who ever loved God from the beginning and was completely obedient. The best anyone else can be is to be the first son in this parable who realized, I just hated my dad. I've offended my father, I've embarrassed my father. I have not glorified my father, and I need to change so that I do. That's the best we can be. But you know what's way easier to do than we maybe like to admit? It's way easier to be the second son. Where I'm not really concerned with seeing where I've offended God, I'm much more concerned with convincing everyone else I haven't. Oh, you can't tell me. You can't tell me that anything's wrong with this. You, you can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Oh, this, let me, I got 17 reasons why this thing that I'm involved in, what I continue to do really isn't bad. That's, that's second son syndrome. Where I wind up not actually doing what my father wants. I spend all my energy just trying to convince people that I do care about his authority. That's easier, much easier. That's our passage today, and I think we can boil down what it teaches us. Uh, really, into, into two things. First one is this I want you to, I want to encourage you to think about intentionally making a decision to define your authority. Joshua, right, leading the nation of Israel. And Joshua says, I know there's all kinds of gods in the land of Canaan. And when we go in there, there's going to be people worshiping all different kind of gods and doing all kinds of weird stuff. Choose this day whom you will follow. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That needs to be an intentional decision that I'm going to decide God is the ultimate authority. And his word, the Bible, is where he told us what it looks like in life. If, if, we don't, if we don't make that intentional decision, we'll be aiming at something different. We just will. The Bible's very, very clear. It really is. Do you know when it becomes unclear most of the time? When the target I'm really aiming after is public opinion, or making money, or, or being popular, or all these other things... And then I have to do uh, what uh, my professor in seminary used to call hermeneutical gymnastics, where I try to make this thing agree with me. Try to find an example that justifies what I'm doing. First thing this makes clear, make, boy, the, the, the religious leaders, their main problem was what they claimed was their authority really wasn't their authority. They had an authority problem. The second, thing is in, second lesson is in two parts. There is some really, really, really good news in this passage. Who are the two kinds of people Jesus said were going go to gonna go to heaven in this passage? Tax collectors and prostitutes. There are going to be former tax collectors and prostitutes in heaven. That's really, really good news. That means the kingdom is open to anyone. Anyone really who will define God's authority as their real authority, which will point to the cross of Jesus Christ where forgiveness of sin happens. Really, really, you have not sinned a sin that could keep you out of heaven. You just haven't. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for sinners. Do you know the story of King Manasseh? Do you know who King Manasseh was? It's kind of an obscure Old Testament character. King Manasseh was a wicked dude by anybody's estimation. Okay, I don't, there's nobody you could put King Manasseh's life story in front of who wouldn't think he was wicked. Um, here's some examples. Um, his dad was Hezekiah, by the way, who was a really good guy, but he didn't take after his dad. Uh, he brought back idol worship. And he participated like crazy. This guy worshipped anything you could make a statue out of. Um, he uh, he worshipped stars and planets. And he worshipped Baal. He built altars to pagan gods. He killed all kinds of innocent people. And here's the coup de grace for Manasseh. He actually offered his own son as a human sacrifice to please a pagan god. That's a bad guy, right? Yet we read in Second Chronicles that in his distress, when he hit rock bottom, Manasseh sought the favor of Yahweh, his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. He said, you are the authority now, not me. And when Manasseh prayed to the Lord, the Lord was moved by Manasseh's request and he listened to his plea and so God brought him back into the kingdom, restored the kingdom. And that's when Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. If King Manasseh is forgivable, there is no one who hasn't been. The other side of point two on the screen there is although the kingdom of God is open to the worst of sinners, it can also be closed to anyone. <laughs> it's closed to many very religious people. The, the people that Jesus is going to be dueling over the next the number of, of weeks, however long it takes us to get through this part of the last week of Jesus' life, they're the most religious people in Israel. Some of them are the best rule followers in Israel. And Jesus will make very clear they are out and the tax collectors and prostitutes, some of them are in. Are you brother number one or are you brother number two? Brother number two says, look at all the religious things I have done. I'm I'm okay. For us, I know we don't go do animal sacrifices in the temple like those guys did. We're going to share communion in a little bit. Sometimes we baptize people. We encourage you to come to church every week. Do Sunday school. Bring your kids to Awana. None of those things will save you. Those are all great things for saved people to do. But there's no attendance chart to get into heaven. If we see anything about the gospel in in the scriptures, we see this. Ultimately, what will make the difference between heaven and hell for you is not how you have lived up to this point, for good or for bad whether you're a prostitute or a Pharisee. What matters is what you do with Jesus Christ. And how do I tell what I've done with Jesus Christ? Listen. If I have made God my authority, and this my guidebook, And it has pointed me to the one who will say at the end of the book of Matthew, all authority has been given to me. If I really believe him to be my authority, if that's what my life is really aimed at, that will begin to show. I mean, it just has to. In the same way, if I point my life at being popular, and that's what's really important to me, that will begin to show. If I point my life toward making money, that will begin to show. If I point my life at following the one who died for me, that will begin to show. Will I do it perfectly? No. Well, sometimes, will I do it well? No. Jesus changes people who submit to him as the authority. We have to try, we have to be, you know what we want to be? We want to be a bad combination of of those two sons. We want to we, we we understand I've been hateful and offensive toward my God. But we also don't want to change and go to work. I just want to understand I've been offensive to God. Do some churchy things. Say I believe some some things and not change anything. That's when things get really scary. You are saved by faith. But doesn't what I really believe is my authority begin to change me? Me? I mean, the, 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 the kid in the parable changes and he goes to work. And what's awesome is the best vineyard workers, you know, he sends his, those two kids out to work in the vineyard. The best vineyard workers are not the ones who protect the mirage of their righteousness. The best vineyard workers are the ones who know what they have been saved from and are willing to engage and interact with, with, with really other broken, sinful people who need what I've got. is a Savior who died for me and is slowly beginning to change me from the inside out. We are going to transition into a time of... of uh, Celebration of the Lord's Supper. Actually, why don't I? Let's, let's pray about this before we transition. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for this teaching. Lord, for the reminder that we, we need to recognize you as our authority and recognize that as our authority, you've pointed us toward the Savior that we need. My God, I know on a daily basis, uh, I need to repent. God, may we begin to have testimonies of things I'm doing that I decided I can't do. Show us where we've been offensive and hateful toward you, our daddy. We might allow you to change us, not because it it saves us, but because we've already been saved of it. And There's no real sense in hiding it as much as just changing from it and using it as a testimony of what you do. God, may we stop the the mental gymnastics of justifying things you don't like that we continue to do as we chase targets which aren't you. God, I thank you so much that the only good son to this vineyard to die under the wrath uh, of God that should have been aimed at us we are not the good sons and daughters we were hateful and offensive to you but you sent your son to die for us and be with us while we celebrate that through communion now in Jesus name amen In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. And Paul told the Corinthians, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes how do you want to be remembered? How would you answer that question? How do you want people to remember you? How many of you, if you are thinking about that, answered it this way? I want people to remember the way I looked and what was happening to me while I died. I want my loved ones to remember what I was gasping choking, fighting to stay on this planet. That's what I want people to remember. Paul said, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. Why? What a morbid thing we're going to do. Why would we do for Jesus something we wouldn't do for anyone else you all have loved ones and when you remember them you remember them at their best but right now we're gonna spend some time remembering Jesus that is worst because he, why would we do that because the only good son who ever lived died so that you and I might live it is the center of our faith it is ground zero. It is the only hope you and I ever have to stand before a holy God and hear him say, I've been building a place for you. I want you to come see it. So we got about 10 minutes here. Paul also tells us to examine himself. I'm going I'm to just shut up for a minute. There is something you need to bring before the Lord that's come to mind during the, the sermon this morning. I want you to spend some time with him, confess that to him, um, and just to examine your heart, what you might need to repent of this morning, and then we'll remember that he died to kill that. I don't know what you've been thinking about. I don't know what you've been wrestling with. I don't know what you need to repent of. I know it can be a testimony of what God does when they make Jesus their authority. And I know this 2,000 years ago, Jesus nailed it to a cross and he put it to death and he took every ounce of punishment that ever deserved. And he wants you to walk with him. He does want you to change, but he will never make you pay if you believe that he has already swallowed that punishment. That's what we celebrate now while we remember his death. Pray with me while the guys come forward to pass out the bread. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that though we have offended you, you have put the good son to death under the punishment we deserve. God, I thank you that as you have heard um, what we need to repent of as a group this morning that you haven't heard anything that surprised you. That with you, confession is where healing begins. You didn't gasp. You opened your arms and said, yes, my son, my daughter, come this way with that. I died for that. I want to set you free from that. So Lord, what we want to celebrate by declaring your death. Because you died under the weight our sins deserve, and that you have set us free, that we don't have to walk in those things again, and we can point our life at a better target that doesn't move. Be with us while the bread comes around, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread... when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you think of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death there's a bit of an expiration date on this, what we're doing. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Listen, there's a promise there. We're not always going to sit around and think about what we need to repent of because we won't have anything left to repent of. And he told his disciples, you do this now. I'm not going to do this with you again until I, I drink this with you worry. Listen, we're headed somewhere better. What we're doing is for sinners, and someday we won't be sinners anymore. Amen? Lord, as uh, as the cup comes around, God help us. Remember the price you paid and the hope that gives us that we might approach you one day boldly We've been forgiven by the blood this this juice represents. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Matthew, while they were eating, after Jesus took the cup, he said this, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. There's no clearer symbol of fellowship and oneness than eating and drinking together in his culture. And he said, in the kingdom, I'm gonna have pure fellowship with you. Why? Because you, don't do, you won't do anything wrong. You're gonna try much better. You're gonna clean yourself up. No, because the blood of God is enough to wash away my sins. As often as we do this, we remember what he did and remember the hope that gives us. Do this in remembrance of him. Amen.